This special episode of the Danger Close podcast is brought to you by Red Sky Morning, the seventh novel in the James Reese Terminal List series. It is coming in hot on May 14th in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook. Go to officialjackcar.com to pre order your copy today. Welcome to the Danger Close podcast. My guest today, former Army Special Forces soldier and founder of Fieldcraft Survival, Mike Glover, also the author of Prepared, right here. Awesome. Oh, look at that. I, saw, I pulled this off the shelf and I was like, oh, look at that. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> nice. Awesome. How's it going? Uh, it's going well, man. Thanks for having me. It's good to see your face. Great to see you, man. It's, that's the best thing about doing the podcast is like, man, I have, we're so busy. Like you are running around doing so much. Uh, I'm not really running around doing so much stuff. I'm locked down writing. Um, but it's just so hard to connect these days as we're in this like building phase. You know, both of us, very entrepreneurial type of endeavors that we're involved in, which means you just got to be in it constantly building, constantly evolving, constantly learning, constantly adapting. So it's hard to just hang out, but guess what? We get to do that right now. <laughs> it's a good catch. It's a good time to catch up. And I've been seeing, you know, I think we pay attention to each other's stuff constantly, but it, when you understand kind of that position and how difficult that endeavor is, you're very graceful for with with your friends that are just in the entrepreneurial grind, and um, it's it's always cool to catch up with you. Yeah, I think it's also a bonding thing because people you didn't even know whether it's military or not. It's just you know any business that someone's building from the ground up, or maybe has just moved from that garage phase into like a bigger phase, like a Montana knife company or something. You know, watching them evolve from a garage into a big space and and all that stuff, both literally, figuratively. It's like this bond that you that you have, um, not uh, just because you have a, now you have a shared experience with this person that maybe you've never even met in real life, but somehow you connected virtually. And it, you have this shared experience of building something. So it's kind of, it's kind of a, a cool deal. And then you also understand also the, just how you have to be all in it all the time. So it's, uh, you become very, uh, I think more understanding and forgiving. You know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, when, when, uh, as, as we continue to build and do all these things, that circle and that tribe, that group gets smaller because. A lot of people fall off. They don't have the endurance to kind of see it through. And so when you're with guys um, and gals, just people in in different industries and you see them thrive, it's always cool to see that. But you also, like you said, you respect that because you know how difficult that is because you're living it yourself. Yeah, no, big time, big time. What's, uh, so what did you post the other day? I saw it yesterday. It had a, an acronym to it. Like it wasn't ASDS. That's our submarine that burnt to the ground here so you know what's up what, what was that thing that you asked him more what is that i was like I'm I gonna go to it and i'm like i'll just ask him tomorrow asmr like it, it's like audio audio sensory something something i don't even know what the acronym stands for my my smart media guys were like hey hey you should do an asmr i'm like what what are you talking about and don't ever youtube asmr because you'll okay. go down a road okay. it, it is it is well, there's a whole there's a whole space. It's a subset, right? But it's all about. Um, I, I think it's it's more visual, but also very much audible. And they have things like um, a woman hygienist doing a cleaning on your teeth. And I imagine it's made for like Oculus heads up display where the person would be in your face. But it's meant to be aesthetically pleasing, but also easy to listen to. And so there's a whole genre of survival content, primitive survival, um, camping, outdoor, whatever, where people just do the thing and they're chopping the wood, they're building the fire, and they're not saying a word, 
but it's got very good, like 64 bit audio. And I've been watching it for years, not realizing it's a whole thing. And then my team's like, Hey, you should do that. I'm like, all right, let's do it. And I did it. And it was really amazing as an experience. And so far people have been like, oh man, this is like the content you've been missing. I'm like, I didn't even know this would be a thing. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. I didn't know things until I saw your post yesterday and I read the caption, but I still didn't, you know, I couldn't connect the dots. I'm like, okay, this is some thing that obviously has been around that, I, that I've seen, but I didn't know it had a name much like, much like you. Uh, but it was, but then I, then I realized like, oh, okay, you know, I get it. I see. I thought it was just like a reel with some music, you know, but apparently there's more thought that goes into it than that. So maybe, uh, maybe I'll get that going too. Who knows? Oh, man. <laughs> But it's uh man for people, I mean, sure most people listening to this know uh, you know, know you and uh you know, we went through your whole background on the last one we did together last year, which was so much fun up here. But um for anybody just to catch them up real quick, uh 9-11, where were you on 9-11? I, I was an E5 in the US Army. Um, it was my fourth going on fourth year in the infantry, and I, I kind of was transitioning to the guard coming off active duty off of a, a four or five year stint and then it happened and then propelled me back into the army. You stayed, yeah, like a lot of people stayed in or got in after, after that. Um, and then eventually along the way, we could, you did, you did a few, a few things. There was a, a path to get there, but, uh, Q force army special forces. Um, what was, uh, what was that? When you look back on that experience, what, uh, what stands out to you and what was it like to, to get your beret? Cause for us, it's changed over times in the, in the teams you had to first, obviously graduate buds and then go to your team, then go some, something called SEAL qualification training. And back in the day, you still didn't have your Trident at that point. Then you'd go to your platoon and in your platoon, you'd be on probation, kind of like a cop doing, you know, out there with somebody that's, uh, that, you know, doing right seat, left seat, kind of a, kind of a thing, evaluating them. So you're evaluated by your platoon as you go through this first workup and they decide whether you're somebody that they want to go into combat with. And then they give you, after a little bit of test, then they give you your Trident and then they pound that thing in. Different today, obviously. But uh, getting the beret, is getting the beret something uh, similar, uh, some like a similar feeling to that, you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it was it was pretty crazy because right after 9-11, I went to um, Special Forces Selection. And during the Q course, which is the qualification course where you focus on your MOS, your 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 specialty in special forces, the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq was going on. And I felt like I was missing out on the war. I mean, I joined the infantry with the intent to get into the fight. There wasn't really a fight going on. So I did all the schooling that I could do and, and was pretty well qual qualified to do it. But but as I'm like going through this experience of of learning this specific skill set, mine was 18 Bravo weapon specialist. I I was super pumped and motivated. But I also thought I was, I had the fear of missing out. I mean, I, I for sure thought I was missing out. And it was, it was surreal because, I mean, I went to third special forces group. I, I donned my beret in two weeks after the qualification course, I was in Afghanistan in a remote fire base on the border of Pakistan and Afghanistan, um, doing the job, training indigenous forces and going out on operations with them. And so it was very, it, it was very when I look back on it, uh, very much like a, nearly a story to me. I mean, it, it was just like, I, I had envisioned what this thing was going to look like. And then I remember thinking, riding on the Chinook into my fire base, having a beard and doing the Green Beret mission. Like, man, I'm living exactly what I dreamt I was going to do. 
and not even realizing back then that it was only the beginning. I mean, it was very much the beginning of a, a long career doing the thing. Yeah. And I love, you weren't always, uh, that wasn't your original MOS, right? Then you have to do it a little, uh, what, what were you originally supposed to be before you did a little bit of, uh, was it a, did you erase something and replace it? I forget exactly what you did or you had, you did a Jedi mind trick on somebody. How did you get what you wanted? Oh, I, did, I think I did most of those, yeah. but you know, in our time period, even for orders, they were either typed or printed and that was everything. If there was a lot of digital processes besides uh, the vague email, most of it had to do with signatures and paper. And my orders originally said 18 Echo. And in formation, when they were calling out the orders, they handed out the orders. We got the orders. And, and then they said, hey, this is your MOS. And I'm like, I was supposed to be an 18 Bravo. And I'm like, this is 18 Echo. And I didn't understand it. I was like, there's no way. And then conveniently for me, the way the Echo was written, you could just kind of like get the edges and make it a B. And so I made with the pen in formation, turned the E into a B and, and really a, a, a sense of urgency, but a sense of desperation because I would not have been a good combo guy because I was so disinterested in communications. But looking back on it, I actually think I would have been a very good 18 Echo. I think, I think the job and skill set is amazing. But I changed the E to a B and got into formation with Bravos. And because I knew how the system was, where it was just paperwork and word of mouth, they looked at it and were like, huh, I'm not tracking you on this board. And they literally processed me in. And, and it's funny because people have asked me this. One of the things you would get kicked out of Q-Course for is an integrity violation. But also the motto is, you know, you have to adapt and overcome. And Green Berets were known for acquisition. You weren't stealing anything. You were acquiring everything. And so for me, I was willing to think outside the box and take the chance, knowing that I would be in a job in a role that I love, which is weapons and tactics. And it worked. I, and, and I'm still waiting for the phone call to be like, hey, man, we got to talk <laughs> about that situation. Yeah, you got to pay back your 20 years now. Uh, <laughs> What's uh, when you when you got to Afghanistan? Do you remember your first mission and not like uh, just you know advise and assist type thing, but like loading up the gun trucks and going out to hit a target, like going out to to find somebody, having built that pattern of life, or however you were getting your intel back then. Uh, do you remember your first mission like that when you thought? Because first you probably show up and you're like, okay, I'm in Afghanistan, awesome, this is real, let's get let's get this on, and then you get maybe that first mission that's a, a capture kill where you're going after a specific individual. Do you remember that first one? I do. Uh, I mean, one. Right before that, I remember looking around at the hills or the mountains around me. I was on the east side of the Hindu Kush and, and we were at elevation and, and remembering how I couldn't breathe and how difficult it was to like move my cardiovascular fitness. I was questioning because I didn't realize all the elements uh, that you dealt with at high elevation. And I also remember my first operation, which was typical of our operations in that area, since we were such at high elevation. We couldn't do a lot of hats, helicopter assaults. We had to do a lot of vehicle stuff. And we couldn't even use conventional uh, big army or even special forces vehicles like uh, up-armored GMVs because they were too heavy. One, one we, were, we were allocated that very specifically um, a MSR, a main supply route along the Konar River where we could not travel without anybody knowing um, everybody in the valley knew that we were coming out of our fire base because of the early warning and elevation the enemy had, but also we could not cross over bridges and 
specific roads in larger vehicles. So we had to use chop Land Rovers. And so uh, as an 18 Bravo, I, I typically gunned the lead vehicle, Martin 19, 50 cal, and had a had a slew of options, a 240 swung, a shotgun on top of my uh, gun truck. And I remember the first operation we did was kind of responding to an area where the the first group team right before us had taken casualties. Uh, a guy was uh, severely injured in this area and have received incoming fire. So it was very different than I thought it was going to be, almost like the Wild West. Top rovers, no uniform. Like we didn't have to wear a specific uniform. I think I was in Carhartt pants and maybe a, um, a, a ACU top that was just newly issued with a ball cap. And then all of our tactics even were very unconventional. And so I, I do very specifically remembering driving up this valley, up this single main supply route and thinking to myself, man, we are so vulnerable and we have no air assets. There's not a QRF on st standby. There's not a, a close air support unit overhead and the enemy is everywhere. And, and that was a very vulnerable feeling, but that was the feeling and the nature of work if you worked in fire bases in and out of Afghanistan. Interesting. Did that change later on? Because um, it seemed for us like in the early days, that was more acceptable. And then as the further we got into the war, you weren't getting approved if you didn't have QRF, if you didn't have air, if you didn't have these certain things that you that were ticked off uh, essentially on a list, then that mission wasn't getting approved. Or did you always, did it, did it never change for, for SF? Did you guys just always hang it out there? No, I, it, there were periods of time where we were given the opportunity to kind of, you know, like free fire. It's like go out there and make contact. Um, but I, I will tell you that trip, Seemingly for us in third group, the gloves seemed off, but talking to guys who rotated uh, after us, including some third group teams, uh, Rob Miller, who posthumously was awarded the Medal of Honor in third group, it was actually in that fire base as a third group ODA 18 Bravo, leading the same indigenous forces that I led, was killed at uh, making contact with the enemy a couple of rotations after mine. And after I believe that year, um, things started to change. They, they started uh, receding back into the fire base, bigger con ops to get outside the water, uh, outside the wire, and just a litany of um, risk adverseness when it came to like doing your job, which I think uh, cost not only lies, but also uh, retention. I mean, a lot of guys got out during that time period because they couldn't deal with it or they, they moved on and went to an SMU or just got out of that group completely. So it definitely changed. That was probably what we would classify as the good old days. Yeah. What was the sketchiest mission? When you look back on all of the missions that you did, whether it was, uh, you know, no matter where it was or who it was with, what's, is there one you look back on and you're like, no way, I can't believe that we did that or we shouldn't have done that. Or what's, uh, what's the sketchiest one you were involved with? Yeah, the, the sketchiest one was Ob Objective Lithonia in 2007 that I did with task force. Um, and I've been in sketchier situations. I talk about it. In fact, in the opening of this book, talking about the being on the rooftop of Stoddard city and, and, you know, taking a, a myriad of, um, enemy fire from different weapon systems, uh, RPKs, PKM, uh, air bursting RPGs over our heads, even mortar rounds, which I, I thought I'd seen it all, but 
that scale was was very dangerous. The difference between that and Objective Ladonia is the closeness in which we were uh, facing the enemy. Ladonia was a foreign safe house uh, for foreign fighters on the Syrian border, which included what we thought was a couple Libyan foreign fighters, which is which are definitely a formidable a formidable foe. I mean, there should be a you should write a book or or at least add this in one of your books on how in the Green Mountains of Benghazi it was a a training center and training ground for I think producing some of the best warriors in the battlefield, at least that I've ever confronted. I mean, men that were our size, that were fit. Um, and I know this from the ISR uh, that I've watched been running obstacle courses, wearing body armor, having uh, 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 AK-47s with optics, potentially sometimes running lasers, later on running NBGs, um, having hiking boots, uh, sunk watches, because they were in time and in sync with each other. Um, you know, running, obviously, suicide vests, but more robust versions of it with grenades and pouches and AK-47 uh, loadouts with seven magazines each. I mean, these guys were a formidable foe. When we infilled in that target, at the time, we were working with B Squadron. B Squadron was the, was the, uh, was the command. We were the subordinate action arm under, this is like a TF Task Force 16 time period where, you know, McChrystal's action arm was running the commanders in extremist force, which I was a member of at the time, uh, SEAL Team 6, Delta, and Ranger Battalion. At one time, it was also the SAS. Uh, in fact, that time period was the SAS, 2-2 SAS. In fact, that rotation, which was, I believe, around the same time period, but it was Dev Guru and 2-2 SAS's last rotation. In that rotation, both of those organizations took heavy casualties uh, I remember during our specific rotation, uh, the 22SAS lost several operators, and we watched it all happen on ISR from the talk. So a beast squadron command, which meant significantly we were receiving intelligence that was very accurate and meant the con confrontations we were going to be with, be in were not coming from Siege of Sodaf, the Sodaf, or these commands that, you know, depending on the intel, potentially would be a dry hole. We knew what we were going to hit was likely going to be dangerous. So we get into the confrontation. Um, we set up, we go to infill on the X and right off the bat, uh, one of our little bird pilots peels off our MH60. I'm on one of the MH60s on infill. Um, and we take incoming fire from an anti-aircraft dishka where the early warning detection system had six enemy combatants at an intersection that had a dishka set up. They opened fire on us. That little bird peeled off and killed six enemy combatants in the first 30 seconds of infill. I'm thinking as a sniper that's on that team of, of the assault troop that's going to go in, that we're not going to action this target. It's compromised. But they watch the target, nothing changes, and we decide to go um, to go and hit the target. Um, ironically enough, a cool caveat to the story, uh, fast forward a decade, nearly a decade, I'm in Erbil in the Chow Hall and see that little bird pilot. Um, and he's working for an interagency government organization, three-letter organization that I'm working with. And he says, um, he looks at me and he goes, I recognize you from somewhere. And I said, you are a little bird pilot. You've been on a lot of rotations with us. And I said, you remember the 07 trip? And the first thing he, he vectored in, he said, remember when I peeled off and killed those six enemy combatants when you guys infilled? And I was like, 
I can't even believe you remember that. Yes, I remember exactly what happened. And we'd be kind of caught caught up over Chow. And he talked about the specific moment and what he did in that in that instance. We get on target. We contain like a, a good task force um, action arm would. And hell, all hell breaks loose. It's not a couple of dudes. It's, it winds up being 13 enemy combatants. All of them rigged with suicide vests. All of them waiting for us. Uh, we went. We ended up losing a dog that was. Um, I'll say the the, the handler's first name because he's he's a cag dog. Uh, his name was Rick, uh, and he was a he- American hero. His dog uh, Vinny was killed on target. Actually saved my life. Was blown up uh, and and killed by a suicide bomber, probably 15 yards in front of me and another gentleman. And then. I was in close confrontation like everybody on that target with the enemy. I mean, I, we were throwing hand grenades. I threw I threw five hand, five or six hand grenades over a berm on top of enemy combatants. We saw, I mean, one of my grenades killed three enemy combatants at once. I saw one of the guy's legs blow up in the air. All of this is ISR confirmed because we, we did obviously a good uh, job post the, post the assault. Um, all 13 guys paid for it that night. We had some casualties. We lost a dog, uh, mostly just minor injuries, nothing significant. But it was the first time um, that I was on a target that went into daylight and all hell had broken loose. Uh, that both the A8, A86 uh, Little Bird helicopters, the assault helicopter version of it, went Winchester. They had to go back, rearm, came back with Winchester again. Um, and then the AC-130 gunship went Winchester and then went back to do the same, but we were already off target. And air burst and detonated all of these munitions on the target and was danger close to us. We we had we were able to back up 150-ish meters and and they had to drop munitions danger close because these guys were still alive in the grass and the tall um, palm trees hiding, waiting to detonate themselves on us. Um, I, I've talked about it a few times as, as, especially, especially as it pertains to dogs and how they save operators lives, but it's one of the first times and, um, a significant time in my career where I realized out of all the things I trained for, out of all the places that I wanted to be, it was exactly where I should have been. And I felt very content in my life being there with the guys and going, this is what it's all about. So it's a, a good reaffirmation mid-career for me to finish strong the last you know decade of my career. That's wild. Do you ever think back or do you think about it then about that uh, asymmetric relationship essentially between us and the enemy when you're describing this and you're describing AC-130s and you're describing little birds going back to base, rearming, coming back, uh, your lasers and nods uh, and the entire apparatus behind that mission, both in-country and overseas that has spent uh, who knows how much on all these assets and training and intelligence and everything. Yet it comes down to you with a grenade, with an AR essentially, M4, and uh, and somebody else on the other side of the berm with an AK. All of that comes down to those two people, essentially. Yeah, yeah it's, it, was, it was a very unique opportunity to learn just that. I mean, a couple of reflections. One, I remember, when we are walking to containment, when you work with task force, you have a litany of support assets and a litany is the wrong word. You have a complete immersion and saturation of support like you've never seen. So as a Green Beret in Afghanistan, remotely located, 
doing the thing is a very different feeling versus being supported by task forms. So if an example would be, if you're walking, you know, like uh, an example would be like, we had received a direct attack once in a fire base in Afghanistan, and I was on the rooftop with a 240 machine gun with a PAS 13, which contrasts in either black or white as a thermal optic, a thermal imagery optic. And it's a, it's a horrible optic. And you're looking at rocks and you're looking for people and, and you're searching desperately because if you miss the person on the ridge line that potentially is going to be part of the indirect attack, well, then you miss the, the pop-off moment of the direct attack and you potentially become a casualty, at least your guys do. So there's a sense of desperation in doing that through a rudimentary optic, nearly a Vietnam um, error optic, versus walking in to containment on Ladonia and I was pulling security and using infrared lasers with very technologically advanced night vision for the time and period and realizing I don't even have to do that because the AC-130 gunship is sparkling what's in front of me in advance with thermal imagery and capability that I, I can't even fathom. It is more better suited for identifying bad guys that I could just luxurily walk to containment without even pulling security because I have a multi-million dollar aircraft with a dozen operators looking on on systems doing that for me. Getting to a point where I'm, you know, you know, I'll I'll fast forward. During sensitive site exploitation, I I was part of the SSC. That was part of my job to collect evidence, take pictures, you know, pull suicide vests with EOD off of the bad guys, consolidate it, then blow it in place. When I was doing that, I was paying attention to watches and to, and to shoots, realizing that these guys were a more formidable foe. I remember specifically the expression on these guys' faces. They were very different. An expression of a face uh, when killed in desperation is very different than an expression of a face of somebody who's fighting for their life because they believe in something bigger. All of their faces were grimaced because they were in the fight. They wanted to survive versus the faces of desperation, most often that we killed in combat, that were just in a position, in a place, and they potentially didn't want to die. And so I remember the expressions. I even, as part of SSC, pulled off the watches, and I still have the watch upstairs. Every once in a while, pick up that watch, which was a Seiko at the time, a very good timepiece for them to interoperate with. And I had two other timepieces together and looked at them and by the minute they were sunk, they, the, the fact that those Seikos survived what they had gotten from us was was uh, was crazy as well. But I kept one of those Seikos because every once in a while, when I'm reflecting on that experience to remember, to remember, because I want to remind myself constantly of that, I pick it up and I look at it and remember how much respect I had for those men willing with all the assets that we brought to the fight that were still with their rudimentary equipment, their nylon, their handmade grenades, and their 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 sense of urgency and and doing the fight together when they knew likely they're going to be killed, that this whole thing was like we, we were still on the battlefield throwing hand grenades at one another. I mean, that's a very intimate experience. It's a it's a good opportunity for many veterans like myself and you to reflect on those experiences because I'm sure you have the same. And and a time in my life that I, that I'll never forget. Yeah. Well, speaking of Seiko, how crazy is it 
that I wore this today. You know, you can see it <laughs> right, right there. So yeah, isn't that crazy? So it comes from uh, Nick at DC Vintage Watches, who actually has a very, I don't know how much he publicizes it, so I shouldn't, I won't say too much, but DC Vintage Watches, he, he collect, he, uh, he finds some interesting timepieces for me. Um, some of them make it into the, into the novels. Um, but, uh, he has a in intelligence background. I guess I'll just leave it at, at that, but so well, I was texting him last night actually, uh, cause I'm writing a piece and I needed, I'm like, oh, I need to watch for a, a Chinese. So I won't give it away too much. Let's say Chinese submarine commander. What would he have? Here's the time. Here's the, you know, here's the situation. And then he gives me some options and I do a little research first, but I ask him, you know, I based, you know, what do you, what do you think about this? And he gives me insight that I couldn't even find online. So that's so rad. Very cool. Um, but speaking of watches, that one right there, what do you got? I think you posted about that one recently too, didn't you? Yeah, it's the new uh, Garmin Phoenix 7X Pro. It's the Sapphire Titanium model. And it's the best, like I'm an analog guy. Like I have, I just bought a, a Seiko uh, Mac D Sog error watch. I mean, it was nice. the, my serial number. I did, well, what, what serial number? It's by serial number, one of the ones that the CIA issued to Mac. Oh man, that's next level, dang. Cause I yeah. there's, there's, most people thought there were three kind of no, Seikos known as the, the Mac V saw type of Seiko. And then recently some pictures, people really zoomed in and did some research and there's a fourth. So there's kind of four Seikos that are known as those Mac V saw watches from, from Vietnam. But, uh, and I, so I, I got Nick to find them for me, but I'm going to email him as soon as we're off here and be like, Hey, serial numbers. I need uh, my Glover's cast serial number that was issued by the CIA. Let's, let's get to work. That's fine. Let's track yeah. some things down. Oh man, that's awesome. Yeah, you wow. have to get, you have to get, I talked to um, a couple of the guys that I interviewed, he interviewed recently, Dick Thompson and also uh, Pat Watkins. But uh, one of the things is most of them, you know, they had the tropic strap, they had nylon straps, but most of them did run that error uh, for, for the specific date, um, the compass that was issued by them. And it, yeah. and it's yeah that little that little copper compass yep no oh, so right over I think it's yeah I think it's over here and it's in the other actually it's in the other room yeah I, uh, Nick sent me one of those too yeah those are I awesome those are so cool and because he did I was like researching that and then I think it's making it into this I'm not positive but I think it might make it into this next show as a little kind of uh, kind of little totem a little uh, anyway we'll we'll see if it makes it in or not but I think it's making it into this. Uh, this uh, this next series, which is kind of which is kind of cool, but uh, but yeah, I love all, I love all that stuff. But the plug-in watches, man. Remember, we got the was it the Suntos first or the Garments first? I forget. I think it was the Suntos first. But anyway, we started getting those issued back in like two thousand and three, two thousand and four, early ones. Right. So they would just the bat, they would just you had to plug them in like every night, I think. But so my experience with those was plugging in, and to this day, I'm just like and. I need to eliminate everything I possibly can that needs to be plugged in because there's so many things that I need to plug yeah. in from multiple computers and phones and everything else. Like one more thing. And plus I've always just been an analog guy. So, uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. Other, than it, other than this right here, you know, huh, probably oh, the, the old piece of kit ever issued right here is the Casio G-Shock. I mean, yeah. Probably the situation was reversed and those guys were going through us and like they had aircraft uh, and they were going through and taking watches. They'd probably pick this up and say the exact same thing you said about the Seiko and be like, I can't believe after everything we just dropped on these guys that this freaking thing is still working. <laughs> yeah, this this Phoenix 7X Pro is kind of unique. 
because for the first time it has a 28 day battery life and it wow. tells you by the day. So right now it's 26 days. Um, I'm not really into these watches. I, I've attempted to use them. I had a 5X and it, it, it had issues with it, but this one supposedly doesn't have as many, but I am big on tracking sleep now because that quality of sleep completely affects my output during the day, obviously. And so like even this morning, I was able to wake up and the first thing I do is like hit myself in the face with this push button and I'm tracking my analytics for sleep. And then that sets either my pessimistic, my uh, pessimistic or pessimist, my pessimistic attitude or my optimistic attitude based on how much sleep I got. And so last night it was, it said fair and I got an hour of rim, which isn't great, but it was better than the night before where it basically said, you need to go to bed right now. I mean, you, you're not getting enough sleep. So it is a good way to kind of kickstart and track those analytics. Man, see, I think I'm going to do the opposite. You know, like I know that my sleep was horrible last night and I don't need the watch to tell me that. Like, I don't need to look at it and have it tell me before. Uh, I already know it. So I just wanted to lie to me. Every, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, maybe that would be the better thing. to Tell me every time that you got such great sleep and I'd be like, oh. Fantastic. You know? um, but I know because last night, so I was up until I was up until five writing because I'm on this deadline right now. Five in the morning? Five in the morning. So pushing it through and just drinking water though, you know, feeling good, drinking water and just on it because that's the time where really no one's bothering me. And it's not just the electronic buzzes, it's everything just else in life. You know, people coming and going, whatever it might be. Um, so yeah, till five, into bed. Uh, uh, so I got three and three hours and 15 minutes. Um, and then up and just at it again. So I know it was bad. I know that's not great. And guess what else I'm not going to do today? Exercise. Nor am I going to get in a sauna or a cold plunge, uh, or nor am I going to journal or meditate, um, uh, work out any of those things, but I know it like, so I don't worry. You know, like device reminding me, like I got it, you know? So just because I don't know, maybe it's like kind of the, I don't know if it's something inside me that just wants to be a little contrarian to most everything else that I see when I'm going through Instagram, getting fed to me about uh, the things I should be doing um, or whatever. You know, I, I just feel like maybe I'll just be the the other type of person that just goes, tries to go analog in everything I possibly can. And then uh, you know, some whiskey, some wine, some coffee, old school, you know, and just gut it out, whatever. I don't know. I just feel like I don't want to be influenced and manipulated. So I think I go, I think I just look at everything as a manipulation now. And I wanted to talk to you about this too, as far as social media and the government and China and big tech and whatever else. But now I look at everything as a manipulation, no matter what. Some good and some not so good, but it's at least it's the question. How is this person, this company, this news organization, how is this trying to manipulate me? So I see all the cold plunges and the saunas and the workouts and the, the getting up early and going to bed going to bed early and waking up early, all these things, tracking sleep, all of that. And but I feel like it's trying to manipulate me into doing things I don't want to do. Like I don't want to get manipulated into jumping into this cold plunge outside by some who's just like ripped with the six pack when I know I have multiple books to write, scripts to write, podcasts like. I got things to build here. I can't be sitting outside timing myself in a tub. Sorry about that. That's a little, <laughs> that's my rant, which I probably wouldn't have done had I gotten enough sleep last night. <laughs> no, I think you're spot on. I think, you know, it's interesting. I mean, all the things about social media, for example, are interesting because 
they're influencing people to do a thing somebody else is doing. And so when you're watching them do the thing and you most often don't, how much time are we wasting in our lives watching other people do the actual thing with maybe even no distraction? Maybe it's just a camera set up. They're doing the thing and you're watching them do the thing and you don't do it yourself. And if you look at an hour of allocation of time, that 50 minutes of that is watching other people succeed or get healthier, but you're not willing to partition your own time to do that specific thing, then how much are you advancing or evolving? And, you know, I, I, I think there is something I've done the same thing. I think part of it is our, um, the chaos that we're immersed in where, when we need to kind of structure and make more efficient our lives, we have to get rid of distractions. One, I've been really good at saying no recently. Like I I've cut a lot of distraction. i I've been more concise about even messaging where somebody's like, hey, man, I have this business thing and I want to do that. And I'm like, man, I'll just be straight up and honest with you, man. I just don't have the time or this person's likely not interested. I can't act as the conduit. And so I'm very good at kind of taking more control and discipline over my own life with these things. But I also have simplified a lot of processes in my life. Like you, I'm in my own house doing this. I've taken myself off the road for the exception of going to Hawaii to do a fundraiser for uh, Lahaina and then do some training over there. I don't have any away schedules planned because the more I'm here with my family, the happier I am. And then the, also the more efficient I am doing all these things. So I, I'm cutting out the same distractions. Like I'm not spending as much time on social media. I'm in, I'm out. And I'm focused on simplifying my life, including like picking up more books and physically reading them versus even hearing them thinking that that's more efficient, I'm trying to get back to basics. I like it. I like it. Well, the people who are watching, they can see behind me the library. And uh, the, the interesting thing is that all these are written by Navy SEALs. That's the, uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I just did. It's like half and half SEALs, that's half. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, but uh, man, yeah, no, I hear you. I, I, yesterday, I like someone reached out to me and asked me, I was on a text about a business thing. You know, I know, I know anybody, but I like to invest. Do I know anybody? That sort of a thing. And I was, I was like, oh, man, I, I'm, I've got to finish this book. I've got to do all these things. And I, it's, I felt bad about it though, but I was like, uh, I essentially said no, um, but I felt bad about it, you know? So I need to get over that sort of thing. I'm work, working, I'm working progress, you know? Hey, I, literally, before I came on here, a good guy that I know in my little network contacted me about reaching into a company to do the thing. And, and I, I don't, I never get offended by it. Cause I get it. You know, if you're looking for opportunity, why would you not ask the people in your network? But I said the same thing. I'm like, man, I'm, I just, I'm not going to do that. Cause besides being associated with that company, I'm friends with that person. And I'm not trying to mix this business and friendship thing, especially when I know that person's constantly like me inundated with all that stuff. And I just try to stay out of that. You know, I, I, I understand, I understand it from a associate or friend perspective or a human perspective, but I just want to be more aware of and better at saying no, but same, I feel bad. Like I, I'm, I'm conflicted. I'm like, oh, oh man, I, you know, I know that I'm wasting me. time, wasting bandwidth, being conflicted. I'm like, dang yeah. it. Gosh, I got to hand this off to someone. Uh, but I do the same thing. Cause I had a lot of people that reach out for, uh, to be connected to different people, whether it's Hollywood or whatever, whatever it is. And just, that's a, I just don't, you know do that yeah. respect for those people knowing 
um, just how many people reach out and it's just yeah. overwhelming, you know, and they, they're in the same position. They're people as well. And they don't want to say no, um, but they have to learn to, especially when so many people are reaching out. So uh, I don't want to add to that sort of, you know, chaos. So I never reach out and ask for a, a favor from any of those, of those people, yeah. you know, yeah, it's just, you know, this is how, how it goes. This special episode of the Danger Close podcast is brought to you by Red Sky Morning, the seventh novel in the James Reese Terminal List series. It is coming in hot on May 14th in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook. Go to officialjackcar.com to pre order your copy today. But uh, we got sidetracked by the Seiko because I get distracted by watches very easily. Um, but uh, when we're, th- I wanted to go back to do expeditionary counterinsurgency versus a counterinsurgency, let's say domestically. So those are two very different animals. Um, and we had to learn the hard way. We had spent 20 years learning these lessons that probably could have been learned in the first year or two. Um, but when you look at Iraq and you look at Afghanistan and, and you think about all those technical capabilities that we had behind us and still they end the way they do. Uh, what what do you take away from from that when you think about that? Just this enormous, essentially, this enormous giant with almost unlimited economic and military capability against people in sandals with AKs, RPGs, and uh, making IEDs that, I don't know what the percentages are, but a certain percentage blows themselves up as they're even building things. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the dilemma for us, especially the being an efficient, you know, capitalistic society is we, we want to look at things very binary and we, I don't think we recognize, I mean, some do, some understand it, military leaders, operators understand it, but a lot of the government and how we execute these plans, which are very black and white, I don't understand the will of men and the will of men is very compelling as a argument or even as a recruitment tool for men who are looking for really significant purpose in their life. And they don't have the same opportunity. I mean, a a good example was when I was in the CIA, I I worked in Yemen and I was there when uh, the Houthis took over and we kind of abandoned ship and just like, we're out. That seemingly has gave the Houthis um, or at least in a position, giving the Houthis the power that they they would have always had by taking over that country because of their will. I mean, even a civil war hasn't slowed them down. I think we're on our second week now of attacking them and going after their infrastructure. And then when we blast them into what we think is oblivion in the hinterlands of Yemen, there's somebody else to rise to power. And it's the same thing we saw, and I know you saw this on the intelligence side, especially going after bad guys to find it fixed. You know, you, you kill a commander before that person's even buried. There's a new guy ready to step up. And then I've been in situations where we killed the guy. And then the, the talk is the guy didn't even know he was in charge. We killed him before he was even designated a formal leader. It's like, we knew he was going to be the next in charge. He didn't even get a time to do change of command ceremony. And we blast him into the, the, the earth. So there's something very profound and I think haphazard and also negligent about that fact. And, and we're dealing with that chaos right now 
in the Middle East where we think we could address these problems militarily, which I, I didn't think I would see in the current administration that that would be their tactic because I thought diplomacy was the big pedestal they stood for. We're just seemingly lobbing munitions into specific areas, not understanding the second and third order effects of those decisions. And so how do you stop conflict? Well, it's a multi-pronged approach. You just can't do it um, on the end of a uh, of a, a missile. You, you have to be able to think outside the box and you have to do it very comprehensively. And I'm never not impressed by the will of these men to pick up somebody else's AK in the sand and continue to fight. I mean, I, I, I understand that as, as, a as a man who used to fight in this way, but, um, it, it doesn't mean that I, I don't think that these issues should be addressed. I just respect the fact that, um, for, since the beginning of time, this is how it's been. Yeah. What we saw sometimes is that you take out that guy who is the, the, the top of your, your chart, um, and then he would be replaced obviously with someone who then learned the organization learned. And so they're constantly adapting just as we are, but it's not as simple as, okay, boom, got this guy. Who's next. Um, well, they learned from how we took out that guy and now they make, they, they adapt or maybe this guy second in charge learned. And now he's even, he, they've evolved to be even stronger because we took out that guy at the top. So it's a very interesting, uh, dilemma when you talk about it at that, at that level. But, um, man, what's, uh, so path to the CIA, people are so interested in how you get into the agency, especially, uh, what you did. So on the ground, tactical type stuff as a, as a contractor, um, was it word of mouth? Did somebody say, Hey, come on over here. Did you get online? Like you can do if you want to be a, uh, a staff, uh, officer and, and just apply. What's the, uh, what was the route that you took to go work for that organization? Yeah. So that, I mean, specifically, I think I talked about it on our first episode. I, I was recruited for ground branch out of Libya running, a, running AFRICOM specifically SOC AFA, subordinate command of AFRICOM. Um, I was running SOC AFA's first 12-way program, which is a congressionally mandated counterterrorism program um, at the time to counter offense and target Al-Qaeda in the region, uh, is Islamic Maghreb, AQIM. And so when I went to that position, many of the organizations and SMUs prior that had assessed and recruited after they handed it over to me, I mean, me specifically and two of my guys, because we were the first Africa SIF uh, guys to come out. I mean, we just stood up Africa SIF. It had to be just been validated by JSOC in September of 2012. We, we, we validated, and I'm saying this openly and very candidly because since our last conversations, this SIF has been completely disbanded. But the JSOC stood us up and validated validated us in uh, right down the road here in Utah in September. After that validation, we were then operational. And then September 11th of 2012 happened. I mean, the same month we validated earlier in that month, September 11th happens, Benghazi happens. And then I deploy the first week of October to run this 12 weight. Ground Branch was kind of prodding and picking up my guys <laughs> anyway. They were kind of... Uh, still in my guys that I was working hard to to build into CT operators. But I also understood that SOCAF was um, risk adverse, uh, the nicest way to put it. And likely because of the targets of opportunity that we had, including 
Abu Qatala, who has since been captured and now in Guantanamo, probably, and Abu Anasalibi, a, a legacy um, bodyguard of Osama bin Laden who lived in Tripoli, who I often, I built the CTR vehicle for, my team did, for PIDing that guy who was subsequently rolled up by organizations, inter-organizations and SMUs. And so all of this is going down and I get recruited for Ground Branch and I'm super pumped about my job, my new potential staff position, because I just finished my four-year degree, which is a prerequisite, except the sequester happens, locks us down, and it puts me in a conundrum where I'm getting out as the E8 with 16 years of active experience to go into Ground Branch, which is my dream job. And there basically there's a stop loss and, and freeze on hiring. And so um, luckily for me, since I had an interagency relationship at the time, working with GRS on the ground, this is host Benghazi. Then um, they said, hey, you want to be a contractor for GRS in the interim? I said, absolutely. So I, I, I did that. That's the way that I got in. But most often, it significantly, it is word of mouth. I just had uh, Nick who runs, he's a, a PJ. You should have him on your podcast. You guys, conversations would be very interesting. Um, he's a PJ CIA staff officer and runs a organization um, called Deliver Fund that does counter trafficking. I, I didn't know this until we started the podcast, but he, for example, recruited me for Pakistan. Mm -hmm. And he did so based on my qualifications where he said, hey, I want some of the best dudes who've been through a tactical development course or qualifications by score that you recommend, that the schoolhouse recommends because he wanted some top uh, tier guys that had operational experience, but also had good scores. Because when they go to Pakistan, I mean, you, you make one mistake diplomatically, it could be the relationship with the host nation, um, which has happened before with the CIA, with GRS in that country. Um, and he told me that he picked me based on the scores and, and called the school. I said, I want the guy with the top scores. And they said, that's Glover via his class. And, and they said, can he interoperate with state department? I said, yes. Then pull me, pull, he pulled me in. That's how close knit this group of men are. And when you, when you go to the schoolhouse, what I tell people is in the recruitment process, you are not going there to be trained. You are going there to validate your resume is everything you said you were. And you're, you're basically assessed. You, you show up, here's a 416, here's nods, go to work, do the calls, and then let's see what you're made of. When you get through that, uh, which I lost uh, about five guys in my class of 15 that were top tiered operators, Ranger Battalion, SIFs, CAG, the list goes on. Then you get trained formally on the job and then you deploy. Uh, out of all the jobs I've done in my life, that was the, the best analytical vetting process that I've seen where they, uh, they briefed a standard and they held that standard. And also you had to maintain that qual every two years, including shooting, driving, tactical combat casualty care, and then basically do a refresher of all the things, SDRs, uh, um, close target reconnaissance, and then all the tactics to bear. And I, I haven't seen a program like that since. I mean, Ground Branch is obviously a good program that I'm, I was disaffected from, but it's one of the best jobs I've ever had. 
That's so awesome. Yeah, it's highlighted my time into is being attached to them and in Baghdad and obviously influences my my writing and it's foundational for for a lot of what I do now. But uh, when you started Fieldcraft, you guys are making some changes. You you moved. You have jujitsu classes going on. I see. You have so much happening. When you started it, what was your vision for it? And then uh, did that start morphing over time because you're growing into something pretty big? Yeah, I, I didn't have an idea of what it would be in a vision now. I mean, I never thought we would be to where we are right now because I, I didn't vision, envision that. My original vision was I wanted to teach civilians in survival schools, provide them with survival products. But I also didn't realize what that was. I mean, my first product was a survival kit because uh, through a CIA course I went through, um, that was very well ran and one of the best survival courses I've ever attended made me think outside the box and some things about, you know, you're in X country as a civilian, you're in America and you have to displace for 72 hours. What would you have on your person? That was my first product. And then I was like, well, I want to teach civilians how to survive, not in the cold war scenario where they're rolled up in a POW camp, but like, how do you survive a disaster, et cetera. So that is part of what we do now, but it's so much more than that. The, the unexpected curveball was how much purpose and impact I saw taking effect when people were brought together, being taught skill sets and the culture and the belonging that we felt where you went to a course and you realize, yeah, you got the training, but how was how amazing was it that you bonded with your brothers, that you went on a combat rotation and you felt different. You felt more tethered to them, more attached. And you literally would do anything for those people. Significantly, I think civilians don't have that in their lives. And so I wanted it to be a center focal point for community. And so that's the change, right? That's the the Friday afternoon club, which I'm teaching tonight. I'm teaching grip where I'll have 50 students coming in at $25 a slot and learn from me about how to grip a gun. Um, responsible citizen, we teach every Wednesday for free to the public where we have 25 to 100 people show up on everything from situational awareness to CPR. So I think more or less, it's become a a very, it's like the YMCA of preparedness, right? It's like this place that people go, they get physically fit and better, but they also build relationships with one another. I didn't see that coming. Uh, to be honest, it's not a very good business component of Philcraft is when you look at revenue, but more significantly than the monetary value, it brings me significant purpose. And I think it brings a lot of purpose to people. That's awesome. Yeah. I, uh, friends have gone to the, the, um, from up here have gone down to the, uh, prepared citizen. That's the one that you guys yeah. have met amazing people just rave about it. Can't wait to get back and do more talk about you all the time. So it's really cool to, to see that. Um, and then what, what did, I mean, the social media space and everything else has evolved so much since you started the company, but uh, you've had some, quite the experience in that space from banning to be labeled a domestic terrorist, like all sorts of craziness. Um, like what's that experience been like? And has it impacted you as far as, uh, you know, hope for the future? If you scroll through comments uh, and see the attacks and you see people, I mean, how do you how do you conceptualize social media and what it, what it's done to us and what's your experience been with it? Yeah, I think, I mean, sadly, 
the 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 most tragic thing I've seen is that it's become this outlet for people to to word vomit things that they really don't understand or have context about that temporarily makes them feel good. But I get it. I mean, I understand it. Even when I've received hate over things so insignificant in my personal life or my professional life, it still hurts the same. But it's but more so I feel sorry for people because I I I I, I like I have empathy for human beings, especially veterans. And I see, you know, like I've been attacked by soft veterans who have said things that are completely not true or said things that have been manufactured and taken out of context. But then I've also realized taking time to somehow mediate that on social media is never a good course of action. And, and so I've, I've created um, barriers, but, but more than barriers, I would say tactics in how to address those things that have been proofed over time. One, I don't engage. I mean, if, if people want to have a professional conversation with me over something that they think is going on, that they read on Reddit, that they read on social media, I, I would be willing to afford that opportunity. Um, but I honestly, at the end of the day, have realized I'll, even the conversations I'm involved in and most significantly the conversations a lot of my friends are involved in, it, it makes no sense to invest and allocate any of my time at all in that. Because if you're doing that, you're not focused on doing better or evolving as a human being. And at the end of the day, out of all the years I've been in business, nearly 10 years, I mean, the percentage of businesses that survive one, three, and 10 years is insane. And so for me, I know business-wise, I'm doing some things right. I could always improve, which I continue to try to evolve. At the end of the day, not one human being has ever said anything to my face um, with criticism in mind. Not even constructive criticism. And that's because it's very easy to compel people to get on your side and communicate and and, and create a tribe. Um, and that's what it is. A lot of it has to do with segmenting your your market because they feel threatened or insecure. But not one person has taken the time in their own life because it's been an actual real issue to do something about it. To say, hey, I feel very disdain from this. Which means to me, the issues... Are, are are so insignificant that they don't play a bigger part in anybody's lives and we just need to move on. I mean, I see people every day getting attacked on social media and I tune out of it because I don't want any association with that because I want to always engage with positive human beings who are doing the right thing. And the nature of all that that I've talked about, the proof in the pudding is when you look at all the people who start from a point in position of toxic marketing, tribe allocation, market allocation, how long do they survive? Not very long. They, 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 they sink very fast. They can't stay afloat very long. And then something to their detriment, whether it's their toxic relationships or whatever, floats to the surface and everybody sees it. And I'm like, oh, well, it's just the testament is time. And so... The, the the common bond between me, you, Tim Kennedy, all these soft veterans that do all these things is we're still in it. And so we have the endurance, but also understand how to work and operate in those segments. Anybody else who's been in it that I hear running their mouths in the background have not been in it very long 
and, and they won't survive. And, and I want to help those guys because I want to be an advocate for all those people. The domestic terrorist thing, that's, <laughs> I never wanted to be known as a domestic terrorist guy. <laughs> and so going on Brogan and he focuses on that because it's part of the issue that he's seeing in suppression. I'm trying to distance myself from that because even that, it's like, it's a stigma. And it's like, I want it to be fine as somebody who's improving value and preparing people for the worst case scenario. But it's kind of hard when you're being targeted by the FBI. Well, that's about the FBI in a, in a second. But but it's interesting when I think about the social media and I think about maybe even TikTok and just attention spans and everything else. I realize that when someone attacks you on social channels publicly with something that took them five seconds to write, that's a five second investment of time. Now, if you went back 30 years, if you wanted to to attack somebody or uh, engage with someone, you had to spend a you had to invest a significant amount of time to do that. Whether it's a, a letter or understanding an issue to actually engage on it, but there was no option to troll or to throw something out there just because yeah, that's the kind of person that you are. Maybe you were just born that way, or something in your life made you that way, wanting to get a reaction from somebody or whatever it might be. Waste somebody else's time, waste someone else, you know, that they're never going to get back. Uh, but you don't have to invest in anything anymore. And so th that allows me to kind of just move on from it. I like to use social media to say thank you to people who reach out and want to engage in a positive way and say, I, I like to say thank you because I get to do what I love to do. I did what I love to do all the time in the military. Now I'm doing what I love to do right. And I want to thank people that have trusted me with time by listening to the book read by Ray Porter, picking up the book and reading it, watching the show on Amazon, uh, listening to this podcast, following me on social, reading the copy, whatever it might be. Uh, I, I, I feel sincerely grateful. I want to thank those people who reach out. So I like to do that. But then I also see the crazy stuff if you're doing that, because it just happens to be there as well. But that is an almost zero investment of time for that person. And then if it took them five seconds and now you spent 10 seconds, 20 seconds, thinking about it, you know, that's taking away time you're never going to get back based on someone who had in, to invest essentially nothing in that attack. So it's a really interesting dynamic. Um, but uh, moving on from social media, but it's also interesting with the psychology behind it, because I do like the psychology behind it, because then I can incorporate that into characters in the novels. And it might not have anything to do with social media, um, but that that type of a person that would do things like that, I can incorporate, even if it's just a tiny bit of a person's character in the novel and it's a completely made up character, if I, I can get something and I put it into a character that's probably going to get you know, eviscerated or something in the, the novel. <laughs> Very therapeutic for, for me to do also. Uh, but uh, you know, I also wanted to ask you about, uh, you, You've been rolling, you've been getting it. I mean, you were already in good shape, but you, it seems like at a certain point, maybe a year ago, two, a year and a half ago or so, you really started getting into fitness. You're tracking your sleep right now. You're doing all those, all those things. Um, how's that, how's that, that journey been? It's been, it's been good. I, I go through waves cause I, I didn't have that surgery where I had, yeah. um, my neck fused, um, you know, four disc, uh, artificial disc implanted in my spine. So I, I would, I would always get back into it and then something would happen. I would have the injury resurface, getting that addressed and then getting stem cell. I went to CPI, which was recommended by Rogan. I mean, he's the one who connected me with him. He said, they're the guys to go to. 
going to CPI, getting stem cell, getting some time to kind of focus on my health and wellness has been good. Um, I, I'm still in a recovery phase where I'm not kind of allowed to even roll in jujitsu right now. And it's something I've accepted as universally in my life, I will be the white belt. You know, I like, I will always be the white belt of everything because I, I don't have the time to specifically and narrowly invest in one specific thing. And if people have asked me like, how long have you been doing jujitsu? Since jujitsu has, jujitsu has existed. I mean, I, I, I rolled with Tim Kennedy 20 years ago on a mat when both of us were team guys, 20, just crazy. 20 years ago, me and Tim Kennedy, they were rolling jujitsu together at Team Rock, right outside the back gate of Fort Bragg, 20 years ago. I've been rolling since I was 16 years old, and I'm a white belt at my gym with Greg Lappin. And so um, I, I, for the first time, hope to be healthy enough to kind of do this, but I'm, I'm also realizing I want to be around a long time for my kids. And that is going to take a shift. Like this is the endurance from the Shackleton expedition on the wall behind me, which is a constant reminder that through his family motto, through endurance, we conquer. I, I want to conquer and I, I'm willing to play the long game and to play the long game. I had to be very intentional about the things that I do every single day. Like I, I don't drink bourbon anymore. I mean, I love bourbon. Um, I, I love it. And I decided to hang it up because, again, I, you know, getting stem cell, 190 million stem cells injected, and then drinking your bourbon kind of counter affects the ability for those stem cells to work. So I have to sacrifice and be very disciplined if I want to get those extra minutes, hours, and maybe years on my life to be able to spend more time with my kids. So that's my intention every day is to wake up to do those things. I've been reading a lot of Marcus Aurelius meditations. I've been uh, focusing on stoicism and being more intentional with my actions. And that's made me healthier. Like not interacting with, with trolls on social media. I, I, I haven't been doing that for years via, I think, yours and Rogan's advice. Um, but it, it's gotten me to a healthier place. And I'm looking forward to spending more time doing things like this and, and being with my kids. Nice. I love it. What, how about uh, rally racing? What's going on there? Are you building up? Uh, the Porsche, another one. What's going on there? Yeah, so I have. Uh, so rally racing is expensive. It's like the most expensive hobby. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I came back from Mexico doing a world rally stage in a Subaru, and literally drove the vehicle till the wheels fell off. I mean, the right rear wheel fell off the vehicle on the last jump of the last stage, of the last stage of the race. Um, of 17 races during that world rally event. Um, that cost me 27 grand. So it's an expensive hobby, but I am building a Porsche, a 1983 SC, which is the air-cooled version Porsche rally car that I intend to drive in an American rally stage because I'm so interested in, you know, Ree, who is Travis Petronas' co-driver, and Alex, who was Ken Block's co-driver, tragically passed away um, for 17 years. He was a co-driver. They're very good. They're married and they're very good friends to mine. And so one of them will be, will likely be co-driving me in an American rally stage just to do it more as like a legacy hobby and, and doing it to get out than anything else. My favorite part of that is 
I'm building these little vehicles and these projects with my kids. And that's the funnest part of it. That is awesome. Is that what your doctor said after the surgery? He's like, I recommend you take about a week off and then jump into a rally car um, and uh, do multiple stages. Like, that, that, yeah. seems, that seems like you might want to rest that one for a day or two longer. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I took my daughter and son, my twins, on a elk hunt uh, probably six weeks after my surgery. And that likely was not recommended because I had to carry my kids on my back. Um, but we were successful nonetheless. That is awesome. That is awesome. Yeah. I love those. I always send you pictures of those. Uh, anytime I see a, a rally Porsche, I like snap a pic of it and, you know, <laughs> got it and, and send it to you. Uh, those are, those are awesome. I kind of like the early seventies though. I like, uh, like on my list, I'd love to, you know, find a, a nine twelve old Volkswagen engine, like super slow, uh, like British racing green, maybe just, you know, as, as stock as you can get it, just a pot around in, but then maybe early seventies, uh, you know, nine eleven or uh, the Datsun two forty Z that it's all oh, yeah. out. You know, um, uh, I think the two forty Z are the drivers of that anyway. Uh, was the East Africa Rally beat the Porsche in like seventy three or something around there? Somebody, will- yeah. yeah. I have a. I just picked up a nineteen seventy. I think I sent you a picture of, which is the long, long hood in in Provo. Is a local guy, and, and it's the nine eleven T, which is the the base model via the S, which is the sports version of it. And then, you know, the 912 was the economic version, but outside of the engine, there's no difference in, in everything. So the 912s were mostly converted to outlaw type, souped up type vehicles. But the market on both of them, even 912s is through the roof. I mean, my nine, my, my 70 911T was super expensive comparatively where I bought, you know, I bought my my 1980 and 1983, each of them, I paid less than 25K for each of those cars. And they're probably worth six figures now. That 911 T, I paid 54. And it's just a baseline 911 T. But it's one of my favorites. That even the experience with a 2.2 liter engine compared to my 3.0 or my 3.6 and my 993, my 1996 911, that 70 is just different. It hits different. It's also one of the lightest variants of 911 in in the years of air cool Porsches, which is why I was so desired by Le Mans with the 911 ST, the RS model, which is the long hood version of that, and then also uh, even the 912. The 912 was so sought after because it was the lightest version that you could soup up and it'd just be a race car. Man, that's so wild. Yeah, they're like time machines, you know? I feel like uh, getting something like that is the time machine just takes you back. So and, far, man. So yeah. far. Love that stuff. Um, so I've seen you on socials and on, uh, uh, how many podcasts are you doing now, by the way? I just one. I just do Mike Force Pod. I mean, occasionally I'm on Black Rifles Podcast okay. as a guest, but my only, my one and only podcast is the Mike Force Podcast. And then um, occasionally I'll be invited to my own company podcast for Phil Grass Survival. Got it. Got it. Um, so when you, I've seen you talking uh, like, like clips uh, on various podcasts, your own and others about this next year, this is insane. This is going to be a crazy year leading up to elections. I mean, it is absolutely insane. Um, what do you talk about most when you talk about when people ask you about what they, what your thoughts are on uh, the state of the country and the lead up to November recommendations that you have? For people, um, what's uh, it seems like a very it's an interesting time in American history. 
Yeah, right. I think I think we are quickly advancing. You know, it's like it's like um, in the intelligence world. You know, we get we get fidelity, and you know that we're we're taking snippets of information and correlating it to get more fidelity to get confidence that the decisions we're making are good decisions based on the information. When I look at all of the things happening and then dig down the rabbit hole on specifics of that information, it paints more fidelity that we are potentially being set up to a potential black swan event. I mean, I just did a video released on Mike Lover Actual on my YouTube on black swan preparation. Now, it, the difficult dilemma here as a preparedness guy who doesn't want to be seen as fear-mongering but telling truths. You know, when I on November of 2019, when I was talking about pandemics, because I was paying attention to data and information and watched Bill Gates come out and say at, at the last WHO meeting, the World Health Organization meeting, that we have to pay attention to pandemics in a response, I said, based on the information that I'm consolidating, we should be prepared to wrap our head around what a pandemic is and I've got attacks on social for fear-mongering. Three months later, it lands likely in shot show, and then the whole world has changed because the pandemic is affecting uh, Western civilization. You think so, it wasn't shot show, really? It was like ground zero here? I I I remember going to shot show, and, and you know this because you've been there. The Chinese influence there is massive. And before, during this time period, before they started locking things down, their main role was to go there to literally infiltrate, to take pictures, model, yeah. and black market. They don't even need to hide it. They don't even hide it. They don't even hide it. I mean, you literally have a, a Chinese national taking a picture of a product, three like with all the angles. All the angles, yep. All the angles. Yep. And so we, we know that's taking place. A congressional hearing just took place a couple of days ago with more of that information, including Chinese hacking efforts into civilian infrastructure, which is a, another sidebar. But I thought, when that happened, it, I personally got sick. I got I contracted what the hospital thought was H1N1 three days after my birthday, where for the first time in my life, I went to the ER because I couldn't breathe. Looking back, it was COVID. And when I went to the hospital in Prescott, Arizona, one nurse was like, he's got likely this new thing, potentially. Have you ever been around Chinese nationals? I said, yes, I just came from shop Joe where everybody's sick. Everybody that I know is sick. And there were Chinese nationals that were there. And then the other guy was not taking it serious. He's like, oh, it's probably just H1N1. They did all the tests and they couldn't identify what it was. They, they gave me, they put me on oxygen and they told me to go home. And I was sick for a week, sicker than I've ever been in my life. And so, you know, Backtracking to that, I was positioned as a fear monger because of the way I was taking information, consolidating it, and then my recommendations. Same thing with a black swan event. If I talk about, about a black swan event, just the term black swan elicits a lot of feelings in people, and I get it. But I also understand that I feel like it's a, a responsibility that I burden because of the nature of my work. I wake up full time, and my efforts aren't teaching a flat range or running a Philcraft uh, survival conference. My efforts are digging into news and media and positioning it for people to understand, but also getting recommendations on what they should do. 
black swan is nothing to be fearful of because it's essentially a more worst case scenario, a more comprehensive attack. So the recommendations I've been given is you have a skill set that you likely have learned or trained because it has to do with self-defense. The, 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 the selfishness in self-defense is mostly has to do with you. And those considerations are very unilateral and vertical. But if you think about family preparedness, how many people even train for family preparedness? Not many, because they just take all the things they learn in self-defense and say, yeah, one family defense, I just stand in front of my family. It's like, no, you have to train your kids because they're, they're like ranger privates where they have to be conditioned to the responses because they don't have the ability to cognitively think through processes. Your spouse, if she's not an asset, she's a liability. Imagine policing two liabilities because you only have one kid in the middle of defending their lives or your life. It's more complicated than that. And where a black swan event is more complicated, you just need more training, more understanding, also more capability and capacity, right? Because if you're addressing a at the Boston Marathon bombing, which is a black swan event, two terrorists clack off two separate explosions, creating mass casualties and chaos. What are the people doing that are on the X? If you don't train for mass casualties because you think applying a turn it to yourself is the only uh, problem set, then you don't have any solutions to help anybody else, potentially your own family that's just been, they had their feet and legs cut off um, as they're laying in piles of blood. So I say, look, when you plan for these things, you don't have to be fearful because you're just increasing your capability and you're evolving in preparedness. So now instead of having a tourniquet only, you have a med bag in your vehicle because you're prepared for a more comprehensive thing. That also applies to natural disasters or just accidents that you come across. So I think the black swan event is more likely than any time in human history in this country between now and, and the election. Because if you've, well, we've talked about this before, if phase one, you've prepped the objective. If phase two, you have infiltrated the country. Then phase three, you would decentralize, conduct attacks all over the country at a time of their choosing. And you don't even have to create mass casualties because the chaos and synergistic operations is enough for people to completely overreact in institutions, lock everything down and create fear and instill chaos in the American society, just like the pandemic did with decentralized control and react reactions. So that's all you need leading up to the election cycle where you've created so much divisive uh, infighting. Now you created um, distrust in the government and now distrust of local governance because everybody's overreacting that you have a complete civil war taking place. Do I think it's going to happen? I, I think the likelihood is, if I was going to lay out a uh, most dangerous course action, most likely would not weigh on most dangerous it, it, or most, most likely. But it would likely lie, lie in the category of us discussing it because it is the most dangerous, but not most probable, which means as a civilian, you just need to be better prepared and understand that it could happen. And it, and it, and it really, look, I, I, I'm beyond the point in my life or with my company or with my influence of talking to people who aren't getting it. I did a post the other day where I, I talked very specifically about the amount of people that were coming across our border with no checks or balances and how that behavior via the policy 
is setting us up for a national security dilemma, which is already happening with the amount of fentanyl and all the things that are affecting Americans. A lot of people thought that position was fear-mongering and said, literally, and I quote, what would I have to worry about? And, and my answer to that, after comprehensively laying it out, very, very much articulating the facts and the solutions, is if people are picking up what I'm laying down to each their own, if there's the ability for you to turn the channel, unsubscribe, and check out to complacency with ego and arrogance, and do you, but when shit hits the fan, the reality is you will be ill-prepared and you will pay for it, just like many people have in many different instances that happen every day. Isn't that strange to be divided or labeled as something negative for wanting to protect the gift of life, the most precious gift of all yours, your family, uh, those that you're responsible for? It's just, it's such a strange thing. Because most of human history, you had to. Otherwise, you wouldn't make it much longer if you uh, you didn't have some of these skills, whether it's uh, hunting, fighting, uh, in particular, later farming, of course. But uh, you had to have these skills to survive, not just you, but your bloodline. The, the future of humanity was dependent upon those skills. And now it's labeled as something negative, uh, which is so strange because one of our greatest responsibilities as citizens and obviously as uh, well, human beings, but uh, the husbands and fathers is to be prepared, as prepared as we can possibly be. Uh, next day we come up, I'll have to show you what happened to vehicles out here. So every vehicle has its own, obviously we have tourniquets everywhere, um, but uh, each vehicle has its own uh, kit. So I'm not moving things around between vehicles. So everything's got the med kits, everything's got the recovery stuff. We got the max tracks and the shovels, especially the, and the toe straps, especially with the snow out here. Though with those three things you can get by with, the, uh, you know, you can, you can get out of most situations around here, but there's a bunch of other stuff in there as well. Lights and food and uh, clothing layers and, and all that stuff. So every vehicle is set up. And every time I walk into the garage and uh, like my wife's taking one of those things out of hers because she needed to make room and the car's not there, I'm almost like, <laughs> you know, how much time it took to get all those things together for each individual vehicle for our daughter who has her car or whatever. And I just see it like flippantly taken out. I'm just like, <laughs> But uh, we'll have to go through next time you're up here and get some uh, some recommendations and some other things. But I think they're pretty they're pretty well set up these days. I, think. I love that. I mean, Tim Kennedy, Evan Hafer, Andy Stumpf, and a uh, buddy of ours, Denver, went on a two-vehicle Moab trip post this uh, Origin launch for their, their new uh, American-made clothes. Yeah, I saw that. And, and, and as we were driving out, we were following with lead nav and Andy's vehicles, Denver's imagery of his maps. And he had outdated imagery and it just didn't correlate uh, to the reality on the ground. And we didn't figure that out until we got to that dead end. But not before Andy's transmission was punctured. I saw. And after that rock punctured his transmission, one, if my Jeep wasn't prepared we wouldn't have gotten out of there. I mean, I mean, one, if we didn't have the right vehicle, we wouldn't have got out of there. But two, if I didn't have the winch, the straps, uh, all the equipment that we needed, even, I mean, we, we punctured a sidewall on one of my wheels. If I didn't have the spare tire, if I didn't have the ability to change that vehicle because I had the right equipment, if I didn't have the ability to air down my tires and air them back up, if I didn't have any of that, we'd be like, naked and afraid in the middle of Moab because we were two hours off trail. I mean, off the main road, 
away from anything where we had to turn around and drive two hours back rock crawling. I mean, we, it wasn't even a road. It was straight just rock crawling. This is why it took us two hours. It was probably 20 miles of rock crawling that took us that long. And so it was a very, a very stark reminder that just the basics matter. And, and everybody should have those basics set up in their vehicle at a minimum. And there's no excuse. I mean, you got the capacity because you got an empty trunk, you got a back end, you got a trunk bed. There's no excuse not to have that stuff on hand. Yeah. Oh man. What's your favorite? Uh, like I, lo- I love the 80 series for, I mean, I love my FJ62 and all, you know, that's like my iconic vehicle. I had it in the SEAL teams. Um, I still have them today. I love it. But for whatever reason, like that, that the 80 series is like right on the edge of before things got a little too modern. I still have a key. I can still press buttons for things. There's not a screen. Like I just, I'm really gravitating towards the 80 series uh, these days. So, um, what what what's your? I still have the hundred series. What do you what do you have out there? So I still have I I still have the hundred. I have my 80. I sold my 40. Um, but I so the 80. The problem with the 80 is the engine. The inline six is just a dog, especially in elevation where we live in the mountains. Uh, very difficult to get around, but they're super reliable. My 80 just came out of the shop, still running at 300,000 plus miles. My SJ or my LC100, my Land Cruiser 100 series, which is a uh, 2006, that engine blew its head gasket with 250,000 miles, which isn't normal. You typically could see more out of that, but um, that's a significant fix. All these vehicles... The problem, the, the great thing about the 80 is it so, has solid front and rear axle. And the difference between the 80 and, for example, the next generation Land Cruiser, the 100, is the one uh, the 100 has independent front suspension or independent suspension, period. So with that indis- independent suspension, you lose a lot. And you lose articulation. You lose the ability for that solid axle to tie into a, a solid drivetrain. Uh even the lockers have been criticized as being weaker. So I I like the 80 out of all the positions from 200 down because it is it, it's balance of it's got the right engine. I'm sorry, it's got the right uh, position. The engine's weak, but it's the last great version of the Land Cruiser. Now, if you want a perfect version of it, um, then go with something like the turbo diesel swap version of that. Um, which would set you back. I just got a quote for this: thirty thousand dollars to do that engine swap with the HD uh, engine swap. Um, but you get all the reliability. I mean, a new a new variant of that into a LC80 or a FJ80, FZJ80, if it's a 90, uh, 94 of above, which is what I got, is a great vehicle, man. I mean, I, it's they're bulletproof. Um, they're they're not the fastest, they're not the sexiest, but they're they're bulletproof. Um, my favorite modern vehicle is my Jeep Wrangler 392 because it's the it's the Rubicon Jeep, but it has the V8 Hemi in it, and so it's got power where the inline six or the even the turbo variant of that does not have a lot of power. It's got enough power, but it's got all the suspension, lockers, front rear solid axles. And that thing's bulletproof. The proof was in us getting out of that Moab situation with that vehicle. Yeah. Oh man, that's that's wild. Yeah, I love that. Love that eighty. And I like going slow these days. Like I, there was a time when I like to go real fast, but now 
I just like, hence cruiser. I like to just cruise in that thing. And up here, you've been up here, like the hills up here. It's not going, for, you know, we're not making good time coming up here in that thing. And, uh, but I, but I love it. I love it. But how did the get snow been up there? I mean, not like last year. I mean, last oh, year last was year. insane. Oh yeah. my God, crazy. And it's been melting the last few days and snowing right now. But, uh, but yeah, it's not, it's not bad at all compared to last year. That was wild. Insane. But yeah, like I bet yeah, the '97. I I decided to I'll keep that um, anniversary edition, the 40th anniversary edition, stock um, until I can't keep it stock anymore, or as stock as I can, I guess. Um, but then got a, another one that's not triple locked, that so I don't feel bad about working on it. You know, I don't yeah feel bad, yeah putting the the like ARB lockers in there and doing all that. Haven't had time to do it yet, but it's in it's it's here. But just haven't had time to to do it. But I will, I will at some point. Yeah. We can do we can do car stuff out there, but I want to get uh, I need to get out and do some more uh, some more training. I also picked up one of those Grenadiers, so then that's here, um, and they have like some courses going on where they teach you how to use it all because you have to. I mean, it's like got these triple lock. I mean, it's it's supposed to be basic, but it's still more advanced than just looking down like in the Land Cruiser and like putting and, and locking things up. Um, so yeah, I need to train up on it, but uh, right now it's yeah, that's that's not at the top of my priority. <laughs> You know, get back to writing. That's it. That's it, man. Awesome. Awesome. But dude, thank you for taking the time today. Uh, right here. This is the book right here. Awesome. Recommend everybody pick this up. And so many people post this book that, uh, that I follow pops up in my feed all the time. Cause usually they tag, you know, they tag both of us in there. So I see so many, these books helped so many people out. So prepared is out there right now. Um, it's been out for a little less than a year. Is that, is that right? Everything's right. Turned into one long day for me, but uh, man, what else? Uh, what else is going on with Fieldcraft? Is there anything else uh, going on in the future that's uh, is coming up? Are you excited about? And I should have worn one of my favorite shirts. Is your gray Fieldcraft button-up shirt? Because man, I put that thing in a ball. I throw it in a backpack. I throw it in a suitcase. It comes out, and there's there's like <laughs> wrinkles on it. It's perfect for concealed carry. It's got. I love that thing. I should have worn it worn it today, but it's like it's like my favorite shirt. Yeah, we 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 are excited about more clothing. We're doing a collab with Origin. Um, that's going to be the Philcraft denim jeans, which are made for EDCs. So the position of even the um, where you put um, your belt buckle, you have the ability to shift it over because the loops aren't as close together. So you can EDC. It's got a pocket for a light. Um, it's got reinforcements in it. Those collabs are coming, and we're most excited about. And also the content that we're doing for the Philcraft Survival app, which is an app that you can get uh, education, anything from the academic program for Program 62, which is a 12-week a program on homesteading, on, on potentially homeschooling your kids, self-defense, et cetera, to, to first aid considerations that you can get on your mobile application. We wanted to make it easier for people to train um, online because we know everybody can't fly to where we're going to do certain things. And then lastly, I said, the big thing that's on the horizon for us is uh, I did signed a new book deal. Um, and I write a new book on primal survival, which I think is real cool. Um, it's a two-part book deal with Penguin Random. Um, I think my second book is going to be on fight or flight, which I'm excited about. That will be rolling out over the next couple of years. And that's a lot because of your mentorship and your your help with um, writing the forward for this book. So I, I really appreciate that because I couldn't do that without you. 
Oh man, no, appreciate that. Can't wait to can't wait to see it. Can't wait to read an early version and talk to you about it when it uh, when it comes out. But man, thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. I mean, I know what you're building over there, and uh, and I know how much time it takes. So, since really appreciate you taking time today, and hopefully next time we can link up uh, in person. You know, it's been it's been too long. It's been too long. But uh, yeah, I appreciate it, man. Thank you so much for the opportunity and. and uh, I'm looking forward to your next series of like I'm seeing in every day for the next books coming out. Oh, uh, the, the only fiction series, the only fiction I've really ever read is your books. Um, because I'm just, I've never been a fan of fiction growing up in the military, nonfiction and learning about history has always been uh, top of mind. But for the first time, I feel we've earned that right to kind of step back and look into fiction and the, the tie in with nonfiction and things that are going on in the world at the rate of which it's happening, like by the day, influencing that is the best part of your series. And I'm just a huge fan, man. I can't, I can't wait to get that early, that early release of that book and get it, get it in my hands. Nice, guys, guys, I'm gonna get back to it. Uh, it's back to writing it right now. Uh, but also the series, I'll tell you what, this this series with the Ben Edwards prequel origin story, where we go back uh, in time to show how he took the path that he does in the terminal list. These scripts are good. And when does that drop? When does that come out? Uh, I'm not sure yet. We started filming here uh, in about a month or so, but okay. so I'm not sure what the release schedule is after that. But man, I don't know if it's because we built up political capital because of the data that they see on the first series. I suspect that's probably some of it, but um, yeah, these scripts are awesome. I am can't so wait, man. Can't season. wait. Man, awesome. Awesome. And then where else people find uh, you? Because you have two Instagrams. Plus the Fieldcraft one, but the Fieldcraft ones have been consolidated because there were like five of them at one point, and now they've been consolidated into the one. Is that right? Yeah, we used to have breakouts, so it's all at Fieldcraft Survival. I have a backup for Mike.a.glover. It's Mike Glover Actual. And then most often people could find me on YouTube, Mike Glover Actual, and my Mike Force podcast. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. And everybody else, uh, thank you for joining us today. And you can find me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels, officialjackcar.com. That's the website. Click on shop in the upper right-hand corner for the merch. And if you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Till the next time, take care out there. Stay safe, be strong, keep fighting. Thank you, No James Reese. Think again. Red Sky Morning is available on May 14th in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook. Everywhere books are sold. Will there be blood? Count on it.